0: And September 11th was a Tuesday, statistically one of the least busy travel days of the week. For the passengers aboard Flight 11, less than half full, it meant empty middle seats in which to stretch out for the long trip to Los Angeles. Normally capable of carrying up to 269 passengers, the twin-engine Boeing 767, a mechanized marvel made up of 3.1 million parts, was one of the long-haul workhorses for American Airlines. Sloshing around in the wings and other cavities was up to 10,000 gallons of highly explosive fuel. We have him in sight, replied the pilot. At 50, John Oganowski had been flying for half of his life, first in the Air Force at the end of the Vietnam War and beginning in 1979 with American. Earlier that morning, he had left the bucolic tranquility of his 150-acre farm in the northern Massachusetts town of Draket down from the clouds, he spent his time laboriously plowing, cleaving, and harrowing the soil. When his hands were dirty and his pants were filthy, he was always pretty happy, said his brother James. As the plane passed over the small Massachusetts town of Gardner, about forty-five miles west of Boston, the smell of coffee was starting to drift through the cabin. Flight attendants were just beginning to prepare the hot breakfasts of omelettes, sausages, and fruit cups. Seated in business class, in seat 8D, was thirty-three-year-old Mohammed Atta, clean-shaven and in casual clothes. Instead of lowering his food tray, he pulled his small black shoulder bag from under the seat in front of him, withdrew a hardened plastic knife on a box cutter, and stepped into the aisle. At that same moment, as if choreographed, four other men assigned to row eight also rose and headed toward the front of the plane. Sitting in front of a 27-inch high-resolution Sony TV console, an air traffic controller could see Flight 11's key information, its altitude, direction, and identifying number. Pilot John Ogonowski heard again the crackle of the controller in his earphones. AAL-11, your traffic is at, uh, 2 o'clock, 20 miles southwestbound. MD-80, the controller said, alerting Ogonowski to a McDonnell Douglas MD-80 nearby. A.A.L. 11, roger, said the captain, adding, Twenty right, A.A.L. 11. At that very moment, 8.13 a.m., the move was on. Atta and his men began their assault. First they used their knives to stab the two first-class flight attendants, Barbara Arestigi and Karen Martin. Then they slashed the throat of the business-class passenger, who had apparently attempted to come to their rescue. As he lay on the floor of the plane, bleeding severely, the hijackers began spraying something in the first-class section to keep people away from the front of the plane. Then they made their way into the cockpit, carrying a device with yellow wires hanging from it, which they said was a bomb. "'Don't do anything foolish,' one of the men yelled in English to the pilot and co-pilot. "'You're not going to get hurt.' But likely within minutes the door to the cockpit was locked, the two pilots were killed, and Atta took over the left seat. Suddenly, one wing dipped severely while the other rose high, nearly tipping the plane on its side before the aircraft stabilized. As the plane turned south toward New York, the flight attendants provided oxygen to the injured people and used the public address system to request the assistance of any doctor or nurse on board. In the coach section, passengers remained calm, thinking there was just some medical emergency. Sixteen seconds later, unaware of the horror then taking place in a blood-splattered cockpit, the Boston controller again radioed flight 11. "AAL 11, now climb maintain FL350," he said, giving the pilot permission to climb from 29,000 to 35,000 feet. Hearing nothing, he repeated the message 10 seconds later, and again 11 seconds later, and once more 15 seconds later at 8:14:23. But still no reply. By 8.15, the air traffic controller in Boston was becoming greatly concerned. Despite his numerous calls, there was only a deathly silence from American Flight 11. He switched to the emergency frequency, 121.5. A.A.L. 11, if you hear Boston's center, dent, please, or acknowledge, repeated the controller, his voice rising. At 8.24, frightening words poured from his earphones. We have some planes. "'said a voice. "'Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. "'We are returning to the airport.' "'It was a message, likely from Mohammed Atta, "'intended for his passengers. "'But it was relayed to the Boston Center, "'possibly as a result of Captain Ogonowski "'secretly activating the push-to-talk button "'on the plane's wheel before being killed, "'or accidentally by Atta as he took his place. "'The depressed button allowed the controller "'to hear what was going on at that moment in the cockpit.' We have more planes. We have other planes, the hijacker said. And, uh, who's trying to call me here? Asked the controller, wondering if it was his missing Boeing 767. A-A-L-11, are you trying to call? Then another troubling message. Okay, if you try to make any moves, you'll endanger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. And finally, at a second before 834 came one more. ''Nobody move, please,'' said the voice. ''We are going back to the airport. Don't try to make any stupid moves.'' Six minutes later, at 8.40, the military liaison at Boston's FAA notified NORAD's Northeast Air Defense Sector Operations Center at Rome, New York. ''We have a hijacked aircraft, and I need you to get some sort of fighters out here to help us out,'' he told Don Deskins. ''The transponder on Flight 11 was no longer working,'' he said. Also, the Los Angeles-bound plane had suddenly made an unexpected left turn toward New York City. And then there were the frightening transmissions. ''Get some F-16s or something,'' airborne, he pleaded. Deskins asked for Flight 11's latest position, but when the operator looked for it, it had disappeared. ''American 11 Heavy, Boston Center, your transponder appears to be inoperative. Please recycle,'' said one of the controllers, repeating it several times. "'American 11 Heavy, how do you read Boston center? Over.' As the plane was crossing from Massachusetts into New York, Atta turned off the plane's transponder, the device that transmits the plane's identification, speed, altitude, and location to the FAA's radar systems. Without the transponder information, Boston could still track it on its primary radar using faint skin paint returns. But for the technicians in Rome, like Jeremy Powell finding the dot in the maze of moving and blinking images on his screen would be very difficult. At that moment, there were approximately 2,500 planes in the air over the Northeast alone. We were going by the old-fashioned method of what was his last known speed, his last known heading, his altitude, said Powell, and we were trying to kind of map it out on the scope. We'll direct the intercept, said the Boston liaison officer. Just get something up there. Deskins rushed up a short flight of stairs to the weapons desk in the battle cab, a glassed-in balcony that overhung the ops room like a corporate suite at a football stadium. Her commanding officer, Air Force Colonel Robert Marr, was in the room working on the drill. ''I have FAA on the phone, the shout line, Boston Center. They said they have a hijacked aircraft,'' she told him. ''He says it's going to New York.'' Suddenly she wondered why a large jet would be commandeered to go such a short distance. As American Flight 11 continued tearing toward New York City, two courageous flight attendants, huddling out of sight, managed to telephone fellow colleagues with key details of what was taking place. "'Listen, and listen to me very carefully. I'm on Flight 11. The airplane has been hijacked,' said Amy Sweeney, a 13-year veteran of the airline. She was talking to American Airlines ground manager Michael Woodward at Boston's Logan Airport. Nearby, another flight attendant, Betty Ong, who had been with the airline a year longer than Sweeney, was also able to call an airline official on the ground. She reached Vanessa Minter, an agent at the airline's reservation center in Raleigh, North Carolina. For twenty-five minutes, both flight attendants were able to communicate over crew telephones in the coach section of the plane. They relayed key details of the hijacking in real time, including the bloody way in which the men took over the cockpit— From the seat numbers Sweeney was able to pass on, airline officials were able to pull up such vital details as their names, addresses, phone numbers, and credit card information, including that of Mohammed Atta. She said they were all males and appeared to be of Middle Eastern descent. While calm, Sweeney and Ong were also very concerned. Pray for us, Ong said repeatedly. Pray for us. Up in the battle cab... Colonel Marr called the man in charge of NORAD for the Continental United States, Major General Larry Arnold, at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. Thin with short brown hair, Arnold was a command pilot with more than 4,000 hours flying nine different aircraft, including the F-16 and F-15. As he was walking out of a teleconference, someone came up and told him Rome was on the phone. "'Boss, I need to scramble Otis,' Marr said, referring to Otis Air National Guard Base on Cape Cod.' Normally, the Secretary of Defense is the one who must give the approval to intercept a hijacked plane, but Arnold decided to make the decision on the spot.